Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about the siege of a city. Constantinople is an old and famous city, and one that was particularly well suited to withstanding sieges, but in all, the six-week battle was fairly standard siege warfare, interesting to be sure, but not unique. In this episode, we're going to talk about what made this particular siege different from ending an empire to beginning an intellectual movement so influential that we still feel its effects today. Let's begin. Okay, we're here on HI101 with Ethan Blesky. Hey, hey how's it going? going? Pretty good, how are you? Pretty good. That's good. I'm so excited to have you on. I know. It's going really well. Yeah. I got, I got a good feeling about this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so we've been talking about Constantinople, specifically its terrible fall in 1453 yeah. to the Ottoman Empire, and last time was a lot of kind of going over the narrative of what happened exactly yeah the specifics of the battle the specifics of the battle uh, how how exactly it is that the ottoman empire managed to topple uh, an empire that that stretches back you know into the into the bc years rather than the ad ones yeah in 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 the 15th century that's yeah. a that's a long uh that's a long continuation of of culture of politics all of that stuff for it to have lost lasted that long is yeah. very unusual now, we left it off with Mehmet taking the city and incorporating the uh, the heirs, if you will, of Constantinople into his own court. It seemed like he took a lot of elements of old Constantinople and added it to the Ottoman Empire. How much of it did he actually keep and and like incorporate into his new empire? He tried to keep as much as possible. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes up a lot i found in in doing this show like it, it it's interesting it's not as though it's a, a surprise but you see kind of very common themes arise yeah one of them is that rome equals legitimacy okay yeah and there are so many people in history that <laughs> that try and base their own legitimacy of rule on the roman empire uh charlemagne even did that absolutely charlemagne did that the only i i mean he created the Holy Roman Empire, and mm-hmm. the reason it's called the Holy Roman Empire is that in well, in the year eight hundred, the Pope gave him his his blessing to be a spiritual Christian successor to the you know the fallen pagan Roman Empire. Yeah. So he very much saw himself as the continuation of that Roman tradition. So you already have the Holy Roman Empire, which is happening in 1453. It's a thing. Yeah. There is a place called the Holy Roman Empire that is is already looking to Rome for its own legitimacy. Yeah. So what you have with the fall of, of Constantinople is, I mean, I mean, I've been talking about it as though it's the end of the Roman Empire. Yeah. It's kind of a tricky thing because what do you... Like how how do you how do you mark the fall of the Roman Empire? Because when you look at Constantinople in 1452, it wouldn't have looked familiar to someone who had lived in Rome in the year 250. Yeah, right. There's there's nothing there that would look familiar yeah. in any way. Well, there'd, there'd be a couple of things, but not not major things. They wouldn't be able to have a conversation with anyone because it's no. Greek, not Latin. Yeah, they wouldn't recognize the laws because 
the the Byzantines were almost infamously interested in bureaucracy and lawmaking. I mean, yeah. Byzantine is is a is an adjective that today means sort of a, a stuffy bureaucracy, something yeah. that's kind of mired down in its own administration and yeah. its own rules. That I mean, it's it's that for a reason. That yeah. was a quality of Byzantium at this point in time. So it's it's kind of we can talk about that as as being the second Rome, as Constantinople being the second Rome, but the Constantinople that was there at the fall of the Roman the the Western Roman Empire is very different than the one that was there in 1453. I mean, there's a there's literally a thousand years difference. Yeah, the society has changed, evolved, adapted. The, the religion has has uh, altered so much. The yeah. the politics has altered so much. But we're still calling it Rome. They still call themselves Rome. Mm-hmm. So when Mehmed took the throne in Constantinople, when he moved the capital of the Ottoman Empire to Constantinople yeah. and said, listen, I'm the Roman emperor now, because he did. I mean, the, the, the automatic response, sort of the gut level response, is to say, no, you're not. You're too different. Yeah. But if you look at the difference between the Western Roman Empire and Constantinople in 1453, that's pretty much as different as Mehmed was from Constantine XI. Yeah. Right. So, what 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 do we how do how do we draw that line? I mean, Rome, Rome was all about incorporating other cultures, like taking the best of them and uh, putting them putting that into themselves, as it was. Absolutely. I mean, the only. The only thing I feel, I personally feel confident in pointing to in saying that it is a break from the Roman Empire Mm -hmm. is that it was Rome that was, well, it was the new Rome, it was Constantinople that was overrun and taken over by an outside force rather than the other way around. Yeah. That's the only thing I can really think of that is a good enough justification. Yeah. For calling it a break in Rome. Yeah. Because anything else I can think of already applies to the Byzantine Empire yeah. in relationship in its relationship to the old Rome. Yeah. You know, the old Rome had a different religion, a different language, all of that stuff that we've just been talking about. So Mehmed was going for legitimacy when he did that. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a really common thing that happened. Now, the other thing that happened at exactly the same time was Constantinople falls and everyone else decides to call themselves the new Rome. Oh, so we've got Frederick III of the Holy Roman Empire went, well, we're already the new Rome. We figured that out back in 800. Look, it's in our name. The Pope said so. It's in our name. I'm the new Roman Empire. Like, I, I, I already kind of was, but now I'm the only Roman Empire. Yeah. Ivan the Great, or Ivan III of, of Russia, married uh, Sophia Paleologus, who okay. was the niece of Constantine. Yeah. And said, nope. Kiev is the new Rome. Huh. For legitimacy. Yeah. Where does the word Tsar come from? Caesar. Yeah. Exactly. You kind of go like, what are, you, what are you doing, dude? Like, you're not the new Rome, right? But they were Orthodox Christian. Yeah. He married uh, a Paleologus. Yeah. That's a little bit iffy because, I mean, the the idea of a of a, an inherited a, emperorship a was... Dynasty. Kind of on and off in the, in the Roman Empire. Yeah. I mean, at this point in... in byzantium it was or in the byzantine empire it, yeah it was a, a, a hereditary thing but it wasn't just a hereditary thing there was there was other stuff that went along you with had, it. You, you mentioned just a little bit earlier that constantine the 11th had an older brother who had died which was when constantine oh, okay. yeah which was when constantine took the throne i wasn't sure if he was around still or if it was a thing where like constantine the 11th was more fit to rule right and that's something that had happened at certain points in the Roman Empire and yeah. in the Byzantine Empire, but in this case, it, it had become pretty. It had become pretty hereditary. Yeah. Now the only thing was he's marrying in with a female Paleologus when there are still, when Sophia still has two brothers that are in Mehmet's court. Yeah. Giving him some legitimacy, not actually marrying into his family, but they're there. Yeah. And they're supporting the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. So. You have Kiev, which is, again, Orthodox Christian. Yeah. Has a Paleologus sitting beside the ruler. Mm-hmm. Is, at this point, a center of trade. And, yeah. And to some extent, learning. 
Yeah. Not as much as, <laughs> not nearly as much as, as Constantinople had been. Yeah. But, I mean, it's not the worst claim I've heard. <laughs> you know? It, it's possibly better than Mehmet's claim, even though he's in Constantinople. Yeah. The Bulgarian Tsar, Ivan Alexander, said, we're the new Rome. He had nothing to go on. <laughs> he's just looking for prestige. The Serbian Tsar did the same thing. exactly the same thing just looking to be like nope we're the new rome because i say so yeah so there were tons of claims because the the roman empire was this institution that again had stood had stood for yeah like 1800 years at this point Mm -hmm. that power vacuum doesn't just fill itself nice and neatly yeah it doesn't work so you have a number of people claiming to be the new rome Mehmet's Mehmet was the last Ottoman to claim that title, so that didn't really stick in his line, really. And the idea of the Third Rome, the only place it really stuck was in the Holy Roman Empire, but it was already there. Yeah. It wasn't. So so the concept of Third Rome didn't didn't stick around uh, long term. Yeah. Now, other people kind of resurrected the idea of the Third Rome later in history, most notably the uh, the Third Reich. Yeah. But there was also, like, during Italian unif- unification in the 19th century, there was talk about, like, resurrecting the Roman Empire. Okay. So, again, you see you see all these people looking back to Rome for legitimacy. Yeah. Because it was such a large, like, looming figure in history, right? Yeah. That if you can tie yourself to Rome, you're tying yourself to a symbol of military authority, of uh, legal authority. Yep. Like, it, it wasn't the biggest empire, but it had all these other qualities that some of the bigger empires didn't have. Yeah, exactly. It was a very, well, I mean, it was a very uh, successful empire. Yeah. For one. Yeah. It was a very successful empire. I mean, it, it lasted a long time. It was good at incorporating different peoples in. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things about Rome that look attractive to other people, especially in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. And really, the only other way that you can create legitimacy for yourself is at at this point in history anyways is ruling by divine right okay and if you don't have divine right yeah and if you can't find a way to to claim divine right for yourself yeah the easiest way to give yourself legitimacy besides that is to claim a continuation from rome yeah because there's an acceptance that the political authority of rome supersedes uh certain other authorities okay and so if you can if you can tap into that it will work for you pretty much as well as divine right would at least for establishing a line okay once your line is established then you can point to your own family's success as an indication of divine right okay but unless something extraordinary happens it's really really difficult to just walk up to people and be like hey i've got divine right to rule listen to me now yeah it, it just doesn't work that well yeah so yeah the whole the whole continuation of rome you know break with the the, the byzantine empire continuation of the ottoman empire how that exactly fits it, it's pretty murky mm-hmm. but most people will agree that the Ottoman Empire was not a continuation of Rome. Yeah. Now, one of the most interesting things, for me anyways, coming out of the aftermath of the fall of Constantinople, uh, we talked last time about Constantine XI's kind of final charge into the uh, yeah into the fighting. After the charge, the Janissaries basically went through the bodies, found the first one that had silk stockings on that bore the crest of the royal family, Figured that was probably Constantine. Remember, he had removed his crown, all indications of his royal status. Yeah. You're not going to pull off your socks inside your boots. So they figured that's probably him. Okay. They cut off the the head of the body and paraded it around saying, you know, here's Constantine. And apparently no one recognized him as Constantine. They They didn't recognize him as Constantine. Now, probably what happened was they found their own body. Yeah. But this legend began. That during his final charge into the fray, an angel came down, carried Constantine up, turned him into a marble statue, and buried him deep beneath the Golden Gate in Constantinople. And that someday, 
and and they call him the Marvel King. It's, it's kind I've never of a, heard of that before. I, I had never heard of it either. It's really fascinating, though. So there's this legend that someday he'll awaken and retake Constantinople for Christ, for Christendom. Huh. Yeah. There was, cool. There was also a similar story of two priests that were saying mass within Hagia Sophia, one Eastern and one Western, that the moment the first Turk crossed the threshold of Hagia Sophia sank back into the walls of the of the cathedral and are, are are waiting there for again for the right moment that when they reappear from the walls they will it, it will indicate the coming of the marble king yeah and it's really interesting and like very arthurian and yeah and he's become something of a a, a, a national hero like a folk figure for well for the greek people at this point okay and I, I don't know how much you know about Greek history. I don't know a ton about modern Greek history. Mostly, I found out that's because they were part of the Byzantine Empire for so long. They be- basically became the Byzantine Empire. Yeah. And then when the Byzantine Empire was taken over by the Ottomans, they were basically a subjugated people within the Ottoman Empire. Okay. So Greece really only obtained their, their independence that you'll see today in 1922. Okay. So basically with the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. They used the Marble King as a as a symbol during the uh, struggle for independence in 1919 to 1922. Oh, like I mean, as as if you know, Britain had become subjugated and used Arthur as their yeah as their symbol, their national symbol of of uh, a warrior fighting for them. Yeah. So I, I found that really interesting as yeah. well. Just this idea, and and it's it's interesting for you know, more, more storytelling reasons than it is for historical reasons. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a myth. It's a legend. Yeah. yeah. He, he is not, if you dig beneath the golden gate, there is no Marvel King down there. No. But. And I, if you find one. Oh no. Somebody probably put it there. <laughs> oh, that would be cool. That'd be a great prank. <laughs> Actually, no, let's not do that to people. Um, but I mean, I'm sure someone's checked by now. <laughs> no, the, 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 the similarities to King Arthur and the the, the sleeping the sleeping hero, hero, yeah, yeah, all of that is is kind of interesting that it came out of there, where it's sort of this idea that even though the Byzantine Empire was utterly destroyed, that somehow, some way, there's this this remnant, this this chance that it could somehow come back, yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm not going to make any predictions, but I'd say if I was a betting man, I wouldn't put any money on it anytime soon, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I I just thought that was a, a very interesting story. Yeah, and it really speaks to the 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 general sense of the people the the, the people who were in Constantinople at the time and and, mm-hmm. and and slightly thereafter that they really believed there was some way that they would be able to continue this because if they could just take Constantinople back, then the Byzantine Empire wouldn't be over. Yeah, you know what I mean. And and I can I can really relate to this idea of uh, trying to hang on to it. Yeah. Because, man, you don't want to be the guy that loses the 1,500-year-old empire. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not gone. It's just sleeping. <laughs> exactly. Under the gates. Exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah, that's the, that's the Marble King. Yeah. Now, today Constantinople is a symbol. Mm-hmm. There's a song about it. Yeah. <laughs> don't. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> um... <clears throat> a lot of people say that Istanbul, like this is the moment when it became Istanbul. That's not true. Istanbul was actually a word that was already being used informally before the, the fall of, of Byzantium. Okay. So it's been around for a long time. If I recall correctly, uh, it comes from the the Greek for to the city. So instead of saying I'm going to Constantinople, I'm going to the city. Okay. And Istanbul is the Turkish sort of version of that Greek word. Okay. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly what the Greek was, but the last word is pole, right? Polis, okay. city. So that's that's the, the root of Istanbul. Okay. But it actually wasn't officially changed to Istanbul until uh, 1923. There were, uh, after the Ottoman Empire, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Ataturk? No. He was a famous Turkish politician who put into place all of these reforms after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, basically founded the modern Turkish state. Okay. Part of his reforms were uh, the post system, which is like the most boring reform 
of well, no, I I, I could probably think of one or two more boring, but <laughs> it, I I mean it's not that exciting. But as part of his mail reform, they they changed the official designation to Istanbul. Okay. So it stayed officially Constantinople, or rather a uh, changed version of Constantinople yeah. in, in the Turkish language for a long time after the fall of Constantinople. So okay. just a heads up on that naming convention there. Yeah. Uh, it's not quite as cut and dry as uh, as it seems like it should be. What else can we talk about? There's so many other things that, that really came out of this conflict, but I think one of the more important ones is this idea of... I, I touched on it briefly in the last episode, but you know this this whole Islam versus Christianity yeah. dynamic that was coming out of it. Now, did this help relations? Not really. No? I mean, they were coexisting in the city. They were coexisting in the city, but in terms or in 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 terms of what the rest of Europe was okay with, mm-hmm. the idea of having Islam outside of Europe. Yeah. Like on the Asian side of the Bosphorus, yeah, they could live with that. Mm-hmm. But the idea of the Ottoman Empire taking over the gateway to yeah to Asia that sat really poorly with a lot of people. In 1459, there was a new pope, Pius II, actually called for a new crusade to take Constantinople back. Okay, uh, nobody went. <laughs> When we're talking about 1459, the age of crusading is pretty much over. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't time to go take Constantinople back in yeah. the name of Christianity. But, I mean, this is also a time when we're not talking about Europe. We're talking about a place that people call Christendom. Yeah. And they already had the Moors pushing up into Spain and the Reconquista trying to take Spain back from the Moors. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's a two-front war. And nobody likes a two-front war. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, we talked a lot about, or we talked a bit about how the line of, you know, Islam versus Christianity is really fuzzy in this whole, in this whole setup. In that the Ottoman Empire was a mixed empire; it wasn't yeah. solely Islamic. The you know yeah. the leaders were Sunni Muslim, but they had a lot of Christian subjects, and it was mm-hmm. a somewhat tolerant society. I put so many asterisks behind that because we are we are talking about the 15th century and tolerant is uh (laughs) it's it's a it's a shifting goalpost yeah so but they they did have christian subjects and would continue to have christian subjects out of curiosity did this negatively affect the relations with the orthodox church yes because essentially the seat of the greek orthodox church was gone yeah they basically needed to reestablish within the context of the Ottoman Empire, and there were a lot of concerns, and legitimately so, that the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church would be controlled by the emperor of or, or the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, which is is really problematic. You don't want to feel like your religious leader is somehow being uh, influenced, or even even who the leader is. Uh, is being picked by another person yeah that that feels like it should be well sacrosanct so so that was problematic now one of the things that came out of that was the a bit of a crisis within the russian orthodox church okay what you had in the russian orthodox church was two schools of thought the first is the greek orthodox church is gone now it's on us to maintain the culture and traditions of okay eastern orthodoxy yeah the other school of thought is, at this point, there was some tension between Greek and Russian Orthodox, because those are two different things, right? Yeah. I mean, not they're incredibly similar, different, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're in the same family, but they are slightly different. There are other people that are saying, you know, God let the Byzantines fall, and we're still around. Maybe we should take that as a sign that we're doing it right, and they were not. Okay. Because it's not as though the Russians weren't dealing with turks at this point mm-hmm. i mean not not even just not even just general outside threats but actually turkish people yeah uh i i think i mentioned it last time the turks were originally a steppe people from uh sort of the uh uh 
you know, Western Siberia that came in. They were, you know, horse people like the Huns were, like the, yeah. you know, like the the Mongols were at some point. Like, you know, all of those, they, it came from, they came from the same family. Yeah. They just happened to end up settling down in Asia Minor and establishing the Ottoman Empire. And they, they, they ended up there. But yeah. that's not where they started. So the the Russians were, were or proto-Russians at this point, were, were used to dealing with the Turks mm-hmm. as, as a very real threat on their borders. Yeah. And so they're also looking at it going, well, we're kind of tiny and we're kind of new and we're fine. Yeah. The Byzantines are old and powerful and have all of this cachet and they're gone. Yeah. So maybe we should take that as a sign that we're doing things right here. Yeah. So, I, I mean, the, the reality, the way it played out after a long time was a bit of a synthesis between both, as it often is mm-hmm. with anything like this in history. But it, it ended up tending towards the, the Russian Orthodox, like the, the different ways that people were doing things. And that's why we see a split between Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox today. Okay. But yeah, there's was, there was definitely a crisis there within the, the Orthodox Church. How do you handle that? And so for a long time, the Patriarch of Constantinople... Uh, existed and was still the head of the Greek Orthodox Church, but like the Dalai Lama now was sort of working under duress. Yeah, duress is maybe the wrong word, but there's definitely a threat to his independence, to yeah. his objective objectivity. Yeah, things like that. So, so yeah, there were definite problems in within the 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 Orthodox Church. The other thing that came out of it was that the the Roman Catholic Church was looking at this as a as a as an opportunity to re-westernize any Christians that had been misplaced by or displaced by the defeat of the Byzantine Empire. Okay. Under kind of similar logic. If it didn't work out for you guys, hey, we got a different church over here. Uh, we we're used st- to be the we're same. We're still going strong. We used to be the same church. Check us out. I mean, there's always been some efforts to recombine the the uh, Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Yeah, it's just never really quite worked out. There's too many cultural differences. Yeah, uh, there's always concessions that one side or the other are unwilling to make. Yeah, it's just how these things go. So. I mean, that's that's why you get uh, a crusade to retake Constantinople. It's not as though if the Pope had succeeded in calling a crusade and Constantinople had been taken back from the Ottomans, it's not as though he would have put the Greek patriarch back on the throne. No, no. That would have become a Roman Catholic city. Yeah. And he would have used it to uh, increase his um, temporal political power. Yeah. His influence across the world. I, I mean, that's that's what they were hoping for. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's kind of like how you get a, like a, a multiple party system in in politics sometimes, and sometimes the vote is split on one side and it's cohesive yeah. on the other. Yeah, you had two parties of, you know, parties in quotes of of Christians who were infighting all this whole time, and then you had this one solid cohesive group of Ottomans that took advantage of that situation and came in and swept it. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, there's still a little bit of infighting among the losing party and losing within <laughs> the context of, of of Turkey, of the Ottoman Empire, and they can't quite get along well enough to unite and push back against, yeah. against the Ottomans. So about 60 years, 55 years after the final fo- fall of Byzantium, you get, uh, well, you get the Reformation. And so now... The Catholic Church is worried more about the anti-Reformation, so trying to get Protestants to become okay. Catholic again. Yeah, and all of a sudden, it's kind of like we can't worry about the Orthodox Church right now because we've got a bigger problem on our hands, yeah. namely that we are falling apart internally. Yeah. So that's kind of what's going on with the, the Catholic Church at, at this point in time. Yeah, which makes sense. Yep, it's yet another example of really bad timing in this whole Byzantium matter. Mm-hmm. I mean. 60 years sounds like a big amount of time, but when you're talking about trying to reintegrate an entire wing of the church that's been separate for yeah. 450 years... Takes a little patience. Takes some patience. And then... <laughs> and then you start you start poking away at that, and all of a sudden Martin Luther comes along and ruins everything. Yeah. <laughs> if you're the Pope, you ruined everything. 
that becomes priority number one. Yeah. And you feel bad about the Orthodox that are being subjugated under the Ottoman Empire. But you got more important stuff gotta, to deal with. You got to take care of home first. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the religious dynamics that kind of come out of all of this is a little bit difficult. And again, stacked really strongly against the Greek Orthodox Church from yeah. Byzantium. Now, did the Greek Orthodox Church move at all from constantinople as their seat or did they stay in constantinople just sort of coexisting with the muslims that's a good question as far as i know Mehmed's plan of making the church of the holy apostles the the seat of the greek orthodox church as far as i know that played out that's how that worked okay he was interested in trying to retain as much continuity as possible as we talked about with the whole third rome thing yep and part of that continuity was the religious and cultural phenomenon of Eastern Orthodoxy. Because it's not, you know, you have to, you have to remember it, the, the amount that it permeated everyday life. At that point in time, the Roman Empire was Greek Orthodoxy. It was yeah. the, the iconography of the church. It was the rituals of the church. Yeah. That was so ingrained in what it meant to be a continuation of Rome, to be the leader of Rome, that he needed that around to Mm -hmm. help consolidate his legitimacy as a ruler okay yeah so there's a number of other really big things that i'd really like to get to but i figure we should probably take a quick break first and we'll be right back hey guys just wanted to drop in a quick reminder that if you head on over to hi101.ca there is a comment section for every episode posting If there's anything you have questions or suggestions about, I'm always watching it. Uh, Any suggestions for other topics, if you want to just say hi, uh, or if you want to find a stranger to get into an argument with until both of you end up making comparisons to Nazis. That's a great place to leave any of that stuff. I mean, maybe not that last one if you can help it, but who are we kidding here? It's the internet. I can't stop you. Okay, we're back on HI101, here with Ethan. Hey. Did I say that every time you introduced me? I think I did. I don't know at this point. I still like it. Oh, hey. Oh, hey. Uh, And we've been talking about some of the things that kind of fell out of the the collapse of the the Byzantine Empire. See how that particular city cookie crumbled? Indeed. (laughs) Crumbs everywhere. (laughs) We missed... Before the break, anyways, we missed two major things that I wanted to talk about, but they're big enough that I know they're going to easily fill the rest of the show. (laughs) I left them for last for a reason. Yeah. And that's trade and knowledge. Yes. Right? Yeah. And sort of the the fallout of both. So there's this thing. Oh. The Silk Road had been established by this point already, right? I was about to say, there's this thing called the Silk Road. Yay. And yes, it had been running for hundreds of years mm-hmm. at this point. What's the Silk Road? It trade through from the west to the east to China, getting spices and silk through there. Uh, mainly through not, not so much long distance caravan trade as much as person to person, wasn't it? Originally? Generally fairly short jumps. There were certain merchants that would go... Uh, the, the majority way? of the way and that was basically to cut out markups yeah but, but yeah essentially it started out as a, a chain of short trades mm-hmm. usually what you're looking at is is wealth in the form of gold and silver and precious stones heading east yep and wealth in the form of spices and silk mainly yeah coming from china through india through turkey and yeah. into europe we say spices a lot, but like, what what specific spices did the East have that we didn't? Oh, have Europe had almost no like natural spices, so like pepper, pepper. That was about it. No, uh, pepper, cinnamon, nutmeg. Probably, I I don't have a list in front of me. There's a number of things, but but things like pepper and cinnamon were were the biggest ones i'm sure there's also things like like saffron like oregano i i but again i i, I don't know for sure i i might throw a, a list in the notes 
Yeah. It's always kind of interested me because it's like, I, I know most of the value was mostly because of the trade, mm-hmm. like how, how far it had to go. But I didn't know exactly which spices well, the thing is, they're like, trading for. The, the, the thing about spices is that when you don't have any, <laughs> you're willing to pay a lot of money for them. Yeah. I mean, even now, if you go to the grocery store, if you actually kind of do a calculation on how much spices cost, yeah. you know, per per ounce or per gram or whatever, it's they're expensive. Yep. I, imagine imagine it being six or seven hundred years ago, and you need something to flavor your food with, anything, anything. Mm-hmm. You're willing to pay a lot of money for it. Spices do a couple of things. They make foods that they, they make a very small range of foods that you have to eat all the time because that's all of it that's available to you. Yeah. More interesting so that you can tolerate it without going insane. <laughs> and it covers up the taste of things starting to go bad. Yeah. Which is really important because in general, you are eating things that are starting to go bad. <laughs> that's that's just the, the way of life in, in Europe at that point in time. Yeah. You don't have a fridge. If it isn't salted, it's not sticking around. Yeah, it's either either it's yeah, that's exactly what it is. Either it is salted or it is going bad. Yeah, and salted meat is terrible. <laughs> it's just it's not something that you want to eat on a day to day basis. Yeah, it's it's not. Think of the heart disease. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I think they had bigger problems on their plate at that point in time. <laughs> I, I don't think many people were dying of of coronaries, but. <laughs> I, I'm sure their sodium levels were a little high for our standards. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's tough and it doesn't taste th- that great. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. so it's a luxury. It is a luxury, it, as yeah. is silk. And I mean, you know, it's not, it's not your <clears throat> generic subsistence farmers that are the ancestors of 99.9% of us that are buying the silks. Yeah. But people are still willing to pay a lot for silk. And silk it's, is this weird thing. It's, it's the people with the money that are buying it, which is important. Yeah, and, and, and silk yeah, silk is weird. It's like if you think about it, it's it's <laughs> you know, it's it's spun by silkworms. It's it's the it's, yep. it's a product of, of insects that they make enough of it that we weave into fabric. It's just <laughs> Huh. And really oddly good feeling fabric. It's so soft. It's so so soft. <laughs> And that's and that's why you pay a lot of money for it. It it feels nice and it yep. looks nice and yep, you know. But but spices are are something that everyone that could afford was buying. It's it's pretty easy not to buy yourself silks if you're looking at luxury goods. Yeah. But spices and you know later things like tea, yep, are luxury goods that feel like you can treat yourself to those things reasonably. Mm-hmm. Like they they are they're they're neg they're, they're you could you could classify them as necessary luxuries they're justifiable justifiable i like that so you can be a spice merchant buying all of this stuff in huge bulk quantities yeah and laying out a lot of money for it mm-hmm. but knowing that you're going to get a return on investment by selling it at a small markup because you know that your entire stock is going to sell out yeah now the silk road has been going for for ages People have figured out that there's a place called China. They know about India. They know all of this stuff. That exploration has happened. That's largely thanks to the Mongols. Okay. When the Mongols rolled across Asia and Europe, they did two. They, they, they did a few major things. Number one, they told people about where they came from. And, you know, you have to remember that the Mongol Empire stretched all the way from... I, I mean, there were talks about invading the islands of Japan... They were well, well into... It never happened, but they were well, well into China. Yeah. They knew all about China. Oh, yeah. Down into India. They knew all of this stuff, and they were all the way across into Eastern Europe. Yeah. If things had gone differently, they would have just taken Europe right over. Yeah. So they facilitated that cultural exchange. Okay. The second thing is that once they had that empire set up, they policed it, which is a thing that wasn't really happening before that. There were steppe nomads... That if you wanted to take a, a journey from from Europe to India, it was dangerous. Yeah. There were these tribes that would attack you. There were highway robbers. Yeah. Actually policing these roads, actually building these roads, protecting them, having laws about them, telling people about where they'd been. Yeah. Just created this huge cultural exchange between Europe and Asia. So all of a sudden they know... They, they've had this stuff for a while, right? I mean... 
as we talked about, there was these small hops with markups across yeah. from, from China all the way into Europe. They knew about this stuff, but now they knew where it was coming from. Yeah. And they could they could actually work with that knowledge. So uh, trade between East and West became like really commonplace, really profitable. Yeah. There, there were there were boasts under the Mongols that an unmarried woman would be able to walk with a pot of gold on her head uh, at night and fear no and, huh. and, and fear no one because uh, the the reprisals for stealing from her or for hurting her in any way were so severe that no one would dare to yeah, touch it, her. It was a boast by the leaders of the Mongolians yeah. and probably not strictly true, but that's the system that they strove to yeah. set up. So that was was that sort of still in place along the Silk Road, this sort of policing, to some extent. But by the time the the Mongols were kind of retreating back, well, for, first of all, it took them a long time. Like the Mongols were around for a while, not always at the same strength as they were under Genghis yeah. Khan, obviously. But you know, they when when we're talking about here in the 15th century, there were still Mongols around. And they were still kind of policing the area. They were still they still had that sense of upholding safety in the area. And I don't I don't mean to make them sound overly noble. Yeah. Think less, uh, you know, some sort of like righteous warriors, and think more. That's a nice caravan you got there. It'd be a pity <laughs> if anything happened to it. <laughs> it's that sort of protection that we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it wasn't that they wanted no one to ever get you know robbed it's that they wanted to be the only one (laughs) they wanted their cut of it basically but you know with this knowledge of where exactly this trade was happening the road became so well traveled Mm -hmm. that you know the sheer volume in and of itself became a, a, a sort of protection yeah right because if you're the only caravan on the road you're worried if you can see the caravan in front of you and the caravan behind you and you know those dudes yeah and a couple bandits show up and you know them and their 12 guys and the guys in front of you and their 12 guys are all willing to come and help out your 20 guys yeah you're feeling a little bit safer yeah so i i mean this has been in place for a while uh when you think about marco polo yeah we're talking late 13th century so the 1290s kind of thing okay versus when we're talking now the 1450s okay right what happened when the ottomans took over was that they realized that the trade the trade can't go north of the Black Sea. The you can't get a caravan through that land. It's really swampy. It's really bad for roads. Okay. It just doesn't work. And there are still step nomads that are going to come along with their horse archers yeah. and mess you up. But you can only keep that down so much. Yeah. And that's a huge expanse of land. So going north above the Black Sea through Russian territory doesn't work for trade. Okay. So really, the the only option for getting stuff from Asia into Europe is to go through Turkey. Okay, yeah. And across the Bosphorus, which is why Constantinople is such an important city. Mm-hmm. And the Ottomans went, we could be taking a cut of this. Yeah. Let's take a cut of this. Yep. And so one of the first things they did was they started putting major tariffs on any goods traveling across the Silk Road in either direction. Yeah. Which is a thing that countries do. I mean, it's not any more, you know, criminal than any trade char- tariffs that exist today. If you want to travel goods through a country, yeah, you have to deal with customs. Yep. That's how it goes. Mm-hmm. They didn't really care that it was hurting trade in Europe. Because you're running into that cultural issue, right? Where they don't really feel any kinship. Mm-hmm. So they're still getting their goods from the East. And yeah. they're still sending their... You know, like it's it's working both ways between the Ottomans and China. Yeah. And China doesn't care. Yeah. And <laughs> not not really. Not really. So but the Europeans are hurting. Like the, the luxury goods that are coming out of the East are really important to the Europeans. And cutting that off isn't an option, and having the prices skyrocket isn't really an option either. So this is when you start getting well, this is what we call the age of exploration. Europe was doing good. It was, it was doing fine. Yeah. And then the Ottomans cut them off from the Silk Road. And so this is when you start getting the Portuguese sailing down across the coast of Africa, underneath Africa, all the way south to the tip of Africa, uh, and back up yeah. on the east side of Africa, across to India, down the coast of India, back up, 
and landing in China on the south coast of China. Yeah. The Portuguese, what, what the Portuguese did was they set up little forts all along Africa with the sole intent being basically refueling stations. Okay. So they would leave soldiers there and they would collect fresh water from the area and they would fish and salt the fish for provisions, things like that. Okay. And they would just be there for when Portuguese ships came through and they would just replenish their provisions. Okay. Were they also there to sort of guard the ships to provide some sort of protection along this this route? Uh, well, I mean, they were land-based, so like the the the, the native didn't... peoples that we're dealing with here, yeah, they were there to protect the small ports from the the native population. Mm-hmm. But there was there was something of an imbalance of power between the two populations. They weren't incredibly worried. I'm yeah. sure there were, but nobody else european was using this route yet you could pay to use it okay it was expensive yeah the spanish were also looking for routes around but they tended to take much longer journeys instead of doing these short little hops along the coast yeah uh the dutch were also starting to figure out little little uh um routes around but nobody was really the thing is that's a long way yeah it's a really long journey Mm -hmm. and if we didn't have this situation with the ottomans we never would have been going down south around africa we never would have learned what that part of the world looked like or, yeah but i shouldn't say never it would have taken it would much have longer. taken a lot longer we weren't curious about it yeah or the europeans weren't curious about it the 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 reality the economic reality of needing to go get these luxury goods in a cheaper way yeah i mean it's kind of like it's kind of like digging for oil sands right mm-hmm. like Oil sands make no sense whatsoever to pull oil out of out of the tar sands. It doesn't make sense until the price of oil gets to a certain point. Yeah. Similarly, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to take a boat and sail it south <laughs> of Africa yeah. across the, the Indian Sea to China yeah. until the tariffs go so, so high bringing things through the Ottoman Empire that it becomes worthwhile. Yeah. And it was. Like, it, it, it had gone that high. What about the Strait of Gibraltar? The Strait of Gibraltar is the one leading from the Mediterranean into the Atlantic. Oh, into the Atlantic? Yes. Uh, You're thinking of the Red Sea, so... uh, What's it called? The Suez Canal. Suez Canal. Uh, Had not been cut yet. Okay. So... That makes sense. What you could do is take some boats, take them all the way around Africa, and have them do just the China to uh, Red Sea route. Yep. And then pay people to take it across Egypt okay, and into the Mediterranean. But they had no network for that yet. Yeah, That's something that they would eventually do. Mm-hmm. That's something that essentially the East India Trade Company would set up. Yeah. But Egypt, you've got to go through Egypt to do that. Yeah. And that is not friendly territory. Yeah. Part of this whole thing is about tea. Like the East India Trade Company is, was all about tea, right? Mm-hmm. When did tea become that popular? Was it before? That's a great question. Was I don't it know a before lot. Before the fall of the Byzantines, like was that already established? I, I imagine they had encountered tea. I'm not sure what the popularity was like at that point in time. That would be interesting to look into. I don't know a ton about the history of tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do know that the East India Trade Company started out with spices. Okay. In fact, they yeah, would go. That makes sense. They would go around islands in the in the South China Sea trying to find places that would be suitable to grow different spices okay so they would try and like transplant it there and go like this is our island we're going to grow as many spices as we can here yeah they would leave plantations there and try and sell it at a slight discount in europe because that way they didn't have to pay any chinese or indian producers of these spice yeah so they they started out working with spice the the tea thing i don't know when that overtook spices in popularity okay but uh, yeah, early on, it was it was spices that they were most concerned with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll check into that and I'll leave something in the notes, but I'll try and keep it as short as possible. I mean, I could probably write several hundred words on tea. Oh yeah, uh, full books on tea. Yeah. Now, when Christopher Columbus went to Ferdinand and Isabella in yep. Spain and said, "I want to find a route to China," yep, this is why. Yes. This is absolutely absolutely the reason that he sailed across the Atlantic. Yeah. I've got lots of bad things to say about Christopher Columbus. Let's ignore those for right now. <laughs> the point being that 
the situation with the tariffs from the Ottoman Empire and its effect on trade through the South, uh, through the Silk Road was so enormous in Europe that they thought it might be worth sailing around the entire world to get to China from the other side. That would still be cheaper. Yeah. That's that says a lot. <laughs> that really says a lot. They were worried about the rising costs with the Ottoman Empire. They were worried that the Ottoman Empire would cut off trade with the Silk Road completely. Yeah. Uh, as a as a, a form of economic warfare. They didn't trust the Silk Road anymore. They were willing to sail around the world to get to China. Now they knew that the world was round at this point, correct? Yeah, absolutely. They had a pretty good understanding of how big it was as well. Yeah, they had a pretty good idea. And so he he knew exactly how long it would take, hypothetically, if North and South America weren't there to get to China. Well, here's the thing. He fudged his data. Okay. He claimed that the world was about five hours smaller than it actually is. That's a lot. Yep. So huh. let's see. How long is the equator? Divide that in 24 and then subtract five of those. <laughs> like, it, it's... Yeah. He, I'm, I'm just thinking of straight up time zones, which are roughly... Well, that's that's an hour. Yeah, that's roughly how it works. That's still a lot. That's basically North and South America. It's basically North and South America. Okay, so I just ran some quick numbers. He guessed that at the equator, the Earth was about... 8,000 kilometers uh, smaller than it actually is. Wow. 8,300 kilometers to be specific. Uh, Again, he fudged his numbers and he probably knew that he was. Again, I've got very little good to say about Christopher Columbus, to be honest with you. You don't seem too broken up about it. No. That's that's the right response. (laughs) Uh, But that's, that's a story for another day. The point being that even even if he had gotten his numbers right, he would have claimed that it would be worth it. The numbers were more to, like, him fudging the numbers was more to convince his crew that they wouldn't die and the king that they wouldn't <laughs> die. Yeah. Because they had no way of expecting, they, they had no reason to expect there would be a giant landmass in the middle. Yeah. So imagine, you know, well, how big is the Atlantic plus the Pacific plus all of the Americas? Uh... That's a long way. Uh... <laughs> For all he knew, that would be it would be that. It would be all of that water, and they would have to sail all of it. Yeah. So he was trying to kill his crew, basically. <laughs> or or at the very least, he was trying to give he he was misinforming them so that it'd be less likely to Mutiny? give up on him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What a what a guy. He's got a whole day named after him. Yay. The stand-up gentleman. Ugh. Anyways. The Age of Exploration was driven by the fall of of, of Constantinople. There's yeah. there's no there's no doubt about that one. That isn't even that much of a stretch. There's a lot of times in history where you can kind of connect dots yeah. as far as you want to. Yeah. This one, it's pretty direct. Yeah. If the Byzantines had held on to Constantinople, they would be able to control trade across the Bosphorus between Europe and Asia. Well, it's it's only forty years apart too between the fall of Constantinople and. Christopher Columbus's journey. Exactly. Like they felt the pressure really soon. They felt the pressure right away. Yeah. Yeah. And once even though even though the first journeys were absolutely to get around the Silk Road problem. Yeah. Once they realized there was another continent there, well, it sparked the imagination of <laughs> That sounded a little bit more poetic than no, I wanted no, but it absolutely. to, but, but it, it did. It, and it it, it it formed this age of exploration as you were talking about yeah the the curiosity that 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 uh created yeah now the age of exploration sounds like it's all like super good noble noble for europe let's put that qualifier on there yeah even that was really problematic for europe because there's one other thing that the fall of constantinople spurred and that was basically a complete change in the way that we understand the world, the way that we thought about ourselves and other people. I am making this sound really broad. That's because it's probably the biggest shift in intellectualism in Europe Okay. since the Greeks invented philosophy. Okay. Have you heard of the Renaissance? Yes. Do you know what it means? Uh, the rebirth. The rebirth. That name is not chosen 
lightly. Yeah. It has a very specific purpose. To, to, to back up, there was already sort of shifting views on the universe mm-hmm. and our place within it before all of this happened, going back to like the 13th century, so the 1200s. But this change in thought was happening on a, a scale that was within monasteries. It was called scholasticism. Yeah. That was very specifically religiously directed. Okay. And wasn't having a huge impact on society as a whole. Yeah. These were metaphorical pebbles before the landslide. Yes. And I mean, when we're talking about scholasticism, this is like the classic, this this was never actually a thing that got discussed, but this is the classic how many angels can dance on the head of a, a needle. Okay. That's the kind of philosophical questions they were looking for. That That question was never actually a real question, but... It's true in sort of a general sense, if you know okay. what I mean. Like it's 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 demonstrative of the sort of things that people would be discussing. The Renaissance, I would love to do an entire podcast on it at some point because it's a really important it's, thing. It's fascinating. But we'll just kind of hit some of the main points. When Byzantium fell, one of the things that people lamented was the the end of this unbroken chain of culture reaching yeah. back into the classical era. Yeah. They went, oh no, that's all gone now. Like, this is this is the real fall of Rome. Yeah. Because we, we look at, like, you know, what what a lot of people will call the Dark Ages. That's a bad term. Don't use that term. But the Dark Ages as being this, this sort of intellectual wasteland after the fall of the Roman Empire. No, it was still all happening in, in Byzantium. Yeah. It just Western, sort of shifted. <laughs> Western Europe was was crazy backwards, but yeah. but it was still happening, and it was still happening in a European context. In fact, it had gone back to its original Greek, yeah, where a lot of this stuff was originally happening. Latin is not good for scholarship. The, the, the Romans were more interested in war and law. <laughs> they liked the making money, suing people, and going to war. They were not interested in the philosophy, in the education. If you wanted a good education and you were a, a, a Roman elite, you would get sent to you Greece. You would go to Greece, yeah. Yeah. So they're going, oh, this is this is terrible. It, it kind of simulated a, a, an interest in the classical era. Yeah. Good news. All of these Greek scholars showed up from Byzantium, either before the siege when everyone knew that it was coming. Yeah. Or after the siege were allowed to let go and had thankfully survived. Yeah. And they brought books with them. Yeah. They brought books. They brought ideas. They brought knowledge. They came to Italy, largely uh, Venice, and they set up a university there. And they began teaching people the old knowledge that had more or less been lost in that area. Cool. They taught people about Plato. They taught people about Aristotle. Pythagoras. They taught them what philosophy was supposed to be. They taught them about the old ways of doing history yeah they showed them the bible in its original greek for a lot of parts of the new testament yeah i mean that may have indirectly helped to spark some of the reformation stuff that went on (laughs) but uh it 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 really changed the way people i I mean with that sort of influx of of information of education it's gonna cause change yeah and it was a big driving force of the Renaissance. I mean, the, the Renaissance was about uh, something called humanism. Yep. And, and humanism is this idea that we're not just cogs in a machine, that people have their own agency, they can choose their destiny to some extent. Yeah. I mean, there's always caveats when you're talking about the 1600s, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. It's a start. Yeah. Right? And it's it, the things that you talk about in humanism seem really obvious because it's the foundation of our modern society. Yes. So... What humanism is fighting against is this idea of the celestial order where everything mm-hmm. fits in in a certain way and things are above you and things are below you and you're not going to change that no matter what. Yeah. So again, I would love to talk all about that for forever, but what it what it ended up doing is getting people to question things like, is it reasonable to have the sort of authority that a feudal system yeah. has? Yeah. That's a big change. It had people question things like, is, is, should it be forbidden for people to be able to read the Bible in their own language because they are people who are capable of understanding things? Or yeah. is it best to have an authority figure tell you what all of this means because they're the only ones that can read the Latin? Yeah. Should knowledge be hidden from the from, from everyday people? Mm-hmm. You know, the age of exploration I mentioned earlier creates some big problems 
the native people that they found there doesn't fit into the traditional worldview. They had to figure out whether and first first thing they had to do was figure out whether or not they were human in a philosophical sense. They had to yeah. figure it, and then they had to figure out how it fit into the Bible. That was really difficult for them as well. And 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 so there's all these things that are change like coming at their worldview, right? Yeah. And it's changing all of these things. And a city falling is bad. The the fall of an empire, I mean, it's it's arguable whether or not it's bad or not necessarily it's terrible for the people that were in that empire yeah for sure but the kickstart that it gave to the rest of europe intellectually economically you know all, all of these things it's it's we needed that to happen in europe it was a catalyst it was a catalyst for so many changes that are so important to modern society mm-hmm. and that's really really the reason that i wanted to talk about the fall of constantinople is one city fell and it caused the reformation and the age of exploration <laughs> that that's important that's simplistic but circle that one also true also very true yeah we were on our way towards those things but man did it give a give it a jump start yeah which is incredible mm-hmm. and europe would not be anywhere close to where it is today without that one city falling yeah it's interesting that sometimes you need to clear away the old stuff in order to make the new stuff happen yeah and that's a uh... Byzantium sticking around for 1500 years that's a long time for things not to change yeah so you need that yeah just every once in a while does that make all of the things that happened in Byzantium okay or in Constantinople okay no that's still awful but when you look at it from a macro perspective Mm -hmm. my goodness did we get a lot of benefits from that yeah so that's the fall of Constantinople and how very lucky we are that it happened yeah it's an incredible thing. And the the very direct things that it caused. Mm-hmm. Directly taking scholars and moving them to Italy to fuel the Renaissance. Because it was those actual scholars that had to move out of the city. Yeah. Fueling the age of exploration by directly cutting off the Silk Road and forcing people to find another way. Yeah. Shaking up the, the political makeup of that part of the world by having everyone claim to be the new Rome. Shifting the power dynamic between the Islamic world and the Christian world. Mm-hmm. Like, all of this stuff had really, really important consequences. And yeah. for the most part, for the better for Europe. Yeah. And it's always interesting to see how something that probably, if you're looking at it a day after or even a year after, looks catastrophic. Yeah. Looks like a terrible, terrible thing. In retrospect, can actually turn out to have better consequences in the yeah. long term. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's all I've got on Constantinople. Were there any other questions that you had or anything else you wanted to discuss? I can't really think about anything else. Okay. really. I mean... Um, well, that's good. That means we covered the important stuff. Yeah, Silk Road, tea, that was all pretty important. The yeah. transfer of knowledge and the Renaissance, that was all questions I had. But... Can you imagine being a scholar in Italy and wondering about these things and then having a guy show up with the book that you're wondering about? Yeah. That would just there were there there were people lamenting the loss of of Plato, basically saying like our our world will never be the same. Mm-hmm. You know the the Middle Ages, the name the Middle Ages comes from this idea that there was a classical world and then this big chunk in the middle where everything was terrible yeah. and then the Renaissance happened where we had a return to the classical era. Yeah, it was so important to them that that happened. It was so important to them. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. All right, well. Let's call it there. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No problem. It was a pleasure. Yeah. It's a little counterproductive to imagine what might have happened instead of what did happen in history, as once you start introducing changes, all bets are off. The idea that a single person or event is so important that their inclusion is fundamental to history is simplistic and a bit arrogant in a way, in that we need to acknowledge we can't understand every cause and effect that exists. That being said, I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that in this particular instance, the fall of the Byzantine Empire gave Europe the push it needed to bring it into the modern era. There's rarely agreement on things like this, but many historians will use 1453 as the date when the Middle Ages ended and the early modern period began. That's the period of the Renaissance, the Reformation, the exploration of the New World, and constant political revolution. 
this is one time where we can point to the siege of a single city and say that it changed everything. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about the space race, which I'm very excited about. You can expect that episode on February 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.